Indonesia's President Joko Widodo and other senior officials have been found negligent in an air pollution lawsuit brought by residents in of Indonesia Jakarta. says top government officials have failed to set proper standards to curb air pollution. Their negligence, the court says, is partly to blame for Jakarta's poor air quality, often ranked among the worst in the world. Welcome back to the second episode of Clearing the Air. I'm Shermaine Lee, and I'm Koa Tran. Our team at Sustainable Asia partnered with Heinrich Boll Foundation to produce this series. Last episode, we looked at the air pollution situation in Bangkok, where it comes from, the challenges of policymaking around it, and how the country's youth climate strike movement took off. And we ended with how civil society is struggling to take matters into its own hands to improve the air in Bangkok. That got me thinking: Is this also happening in other large polluted cities in Asia? What happened in Indonesia's capital city of Jakarta recently might give us some clues. In September 2021, a group of 32 citizens in Jakarta won a landmark air pollution lawsuit against the President Joko Widodo and several ministers. That's amazing. The air pollution must be pretty bad in Jakarta then. Yep, bad enough that it drove hundreds of people to go through a two-year court battle. Can the impact of air pollution on children in Jakarta and lack of solutions from the government be enough? To win a lawsuit against the Widodo administration, three plaintiffs and a law professor tell us the story. So when we heard the decision finally that the court won our submissions, woof! It's like、uh, the flood coming out from the gate. This is Yuyun Ismarati, one of the plaintiffs in the air pollution lawsuit. She's an environmental engineer who co-founded a green NGO named Nexus Three Foundation. That aims to protect the vulnerable from hazardous chemicals and waste. In this case, it also means fighting for better rights for breathing clean air in the capital city. Yu Yun is a prominent environmental activist in Indonesia, and in this lawsuit, she's not only fighting for herself. It started with a very dear family member of hers. This issue of air pollution of Jakarta really hit me, especially after my grandson was born in 2018. That was during the、uh, hot season in Indonesia. They live in the central of Jakarta in high-rise apartment buildings. It's not easy. So、um, the open space for him was on the fifth floor, which is facing the street, the main street of Jakarta, the Proklamasi Road. Which we know that during the peak time, peak hours from seven o'clock until ten, there was a huge traffic. So we could see from the fifteenth floor how the air pollution blanketed the air of Jakarta, and especially during the peak hours in the morning, where it's supposed to be the right time for children to get the vitamin D activated by the sun, but it was not. As ideal as we thought, and he was about、uh, a month old at that time. And whenever we took him out and then took him back into the room, 
we've seen some marks in his skin because his skin is still very delicate. And it's it's like uh, eczema, um, developing eczema. And I said, it's this ridiculous, one month old and his skin is already uh, affected. And she soon noticed that her grandson was not alone. Many young families actually live in that apartment building and every day, All the children also play around on the fifth floor and the second floor. And in many cases also, I've seen children running around wearing masks. That's even before COVID. When I asked them, she said that her her daughter have uh, particular problems with respiratory issues. So I thought that probably there is something wrong with the air in Jakarta that I also heard other daughters of my friend. They got nose bleeding as well. So girls age 8 until 10, they got nose bleeding every time they go to school. Even if they walk or are going with the Gojek, uh, with the motorbike taxi, they got nose bleeding at school and also on the way back at home. So it's it's concerning because children's health is, is important. So when they get uh, disturbed, their development could be also disturbed uh, for a long time and in le- later at the uh, later stage of their life. And it's not just in the open air that children are feeling the health impacts of air pollution. Other research shows that air pollution is inside a car all, even when the car was closed, tightly closed in an air conditioned, the PM 2.5 inside the car is high. So it's the pollution trapped inside a confined space um, that's also affecting people's health. Yeah, so as we know, many effects of uh, PM 2.5 could be developed in someone or anyone, especially with history of respiratory problems. As mentioned in the previous episode, PM 2.5 are tiny particles 3% the width of human hair that are found in polluted air. These particles also make the air less visible and appear hazy. More concerningly, they can reach into our lungs and cause us to cough and have a runny nose or even shortness of breath. And if we are exposed for it for a long time, it can worsen medical conditions like asthma and heart disease. While compared to other megacities in our series, Jakarta doesn't top the chart as the most polluted city. It is certainly one of the worst in the world. Indonesia's air is so bad that a UN report in 2019 called the pollution a growing challenge. It says children suffer from lifelong physical and cognitive damage from poor air quality. And Yu Yun, as a grandmother, has been particularly worried about the harmful effects of Jakarta's bad air on children. Environmental exposures during childhood could affect their health later in life. Some of them could be the onset of their diseases due to other reasons hormonal changes and so on, or after menopausal and so on and so on. So when the children got affected or exposed to pollutants uh, when they grew up, some cells of their bodies or the organs of their bodies will not be grown optimally, uh, especially their brain. In a recent study from Catalan University, medical researchers discovered that children exposed to air pollution are likely to suffer neuroinflammation in the central nervous system that will lead to cognitive deficits. And other research from the Danish Cancer Society reviewed that there's a link between dirty air and the risk of brain tumor. So if the Jakarta youth are breathing air pollutants now, they could be setting themselves up for a higher rate of cognitive deficits 
and even cancer patients later on. Studies also shown, even recently, showing the PM two point five found in the placenta transferred from the mother to the babies, and that is scary. You know that the children's development until they are five or eight years old, their lung has not been fully developed. It's not functioning like adult, so they cannot filter the pollutants and so on. So it goes directly to their body,、uh, their blood circulations. That's why it's very important to protect children's、uh, development because their organ and their metabolism already disturbed. There are many cases of、uh, diabetic in children. Also, we've seen in Indonesia、uh, and in Jakarta, especially. Although they are not、uh, fat and not big, but their hormone already disturbed, so they get diabetic. Next generation's health is also one of the main drivers for urban studies expert Elisa Sutanujaya. She also cited her name on the lawsuit with 31 other plaintiffs against the Widodo administration, demanding better air pollution policies. So one thing、uh, that affect my life is because I cannot really take my daughters outdoor. Uh, regularly, you know, you know, being a children, I think I'm pretty sure that they like playing around in the park and etc. But you know, because she's she's like short,、uh, maybe like when when she was like five years old, I cannot really take her anywhere except in the car because you know all the all the gas exhaust from the cars is very low as well and it affect my child because she's short.、Uh, so I start to take her to take public transportation, the bus and everything when she reach like seven. But then it, we cannot really do it regularly. So yeah, I think the one thing that affect me a lot that I I cannot really spend outdoor with my daughter. That's why when when we come to the conclusion about the suing the government, I want to become one of the plaintiffs. I remember for myself, it's kind of like my little effort to ensure that my daughter' future is better than mine. Citizens' health is indeed at stake here. Greenpeace Indonesia estimates that over seven thousand people in Jakarta die early each year, and about two thousand babies are born with low birth weights due to high levels of PM two point five. So, what causes such high levels of PM two point five in Jakarta? Yuyun cites several reasons. The first, of course, is traffic. But like Bangkok in episode one, air pollution is wafting in from outside the city as well. The major pollution came from traffic and also from the industrial air pollutions and emissions. That not only、um, not coming from Jakarta mainly, but it's、uh, from the surrounding provinces, from West Java and Banten provinces. Another thing, because Jakarta is also surrounded by power plant as well, so the power plant is not inside Jakarta. There is only one power plant in Jakarta, but the source is coming from the gas, so somehow it's okay. But the coal plant is kind of like surrounding Jakarta, and Jakarta since is like like plain, and we are facing on the north is a sea, and we have mountain at the back. Sometimes the air also got trapped inside. But the main source really is the pollutant from fossil fuel transport. And I think it's the love of petrol. 
public transport. So in the last 10 years, that's the mushroomings of the swarm of motorbikes in, in Jakarta and, and big cities of Indonesia. And that shows the failure of government to provide an adequate and sustainable public transport. Jakarta's public transportation system has just started growing, with the first subway line beginning its operation in as late as 2019. So people in Jakarta rent or own their own motorcycles to travel around the city. After an economic crisis in 1997, motorcycles have become one of the most popular modes of transport in Indonesia. In 2019, there were 112 million motorcycles on its roads, thus as many as 40% of the whole population. And the sales of motorcycles were growing last year. We have like more than 20 million motorcycles in only in Jakarta region. And then also the cars also like six to seven millions and only around 10% who are using public transportation. So uh, you can imagine how Jakarta is always under gridlock and why it's uh, heavily polluted. You know the platform like Gojek and Grab. Eliza is referring to the food delivery app companies in Jakarta, Gojek and Grab. We can also make them responsible in this case as well. For example, they allow you ordering food 40 kilometers away from your home. So it's 40 kilometers away so far. Then they not only unsafe for the riders, but also you contribute more pollution because pollution produced by how many kilometers you travel. So it's so unnecessary if you allow to have uh, ordering food for more than uh, 20 kilometers. The capital city's traffic jam has been notorious. A study showed that an average person in the city has to spend 22 days in a year just being stuck in a traffic jam. Government officials have to be escorted by police convoys just to make it on time to meetings. And some Indonesians have actually died from exhaust fumes poisoning by sitting in the traffic for too long. For Greenpeace Indonesia director Leonard Sinmanjuntak, Growing up in Indonesia means he witnessed the change in air quality over the past decades. So I grew up in Jakarta. I grew up and I, I spent my years of my teenage years. It's continuously getting worse. The Jakarta transport system very much in favor of private vehicles. So only in recent years, government puts a lot of serious attention and investment to mass public transport system. So yeah, over the last eight years or so, eight to ten, uh, ten years. So I enjoyed Jakarta without the traffic jam back in the 70s and in, in the 80s. It was actually good. I mean, it's, you know, livable, Jakarta. You know, you travel from one place to another half an hour now, two and a half hours. But now, uh, in the past few years, 
we have the subway for the very first time in our history. So it cut down a lot. But, you know, it's only now in, in one particular section of Jakarta. On top of developing public transport to reduce traffic congestion and improve air quality, the government also started encouraging citizens to ride their bicycles to work. President Jiko Ridodo used to bike to work every day for a kilometer between his official residence and his office to lead the campaign when he was still the governor of Jakarta. After the pandemic began, the number of cyclists in the capital city soared tenfold. Jakarta has designated 63 kilometers of bike lanes across the city. The critics say the development is too little and it still remains unsafe. While arranging our interview with Eliza, she actually had a bike accident. And one of the things they said that we already improved our bike lane and etc. etc. But they were, they yes, they provide a bike lane, but the condition of the bike lane is not really safe for the cyclists. So that's why not really many people encouraged to do cycling. And they said that uh, this is by providing cycling, we already kind of try to improve the air quality. <laughs> so they they excuse. <laughs> Jakarta's serious air pollution is part of the reason for Indonesia to switch its capital to a city named Nusantara in the province of East Kalimantan, which is on the island of Borneo. And the government hopes that this can take some pressure off Jakarta's bad traffic and air pollution. But will it help? Yuyun is not so sure. It's easier to, to create something new uh, with uh, the ideal design. And of course, the new capital will have all these good infrastructures because it will be built from scratch. But the issue of air pollution in Jakarta, I don't think it will be solved when the capital moves to Kalimantan because other economic activities will still be in Jakarta. Only their, their offices, probably the offices of the company's headquarters will move to the capital, but the remaining activities will still be in Jakarta. And yeah, if people think that the traffic of Jakarta will solve by moving the capital, that is wrong, in my opinion. Eliza, who specializes in urban studies, agrees with Yu Yun. So for one thing, Jakarta still become you know, like the financial economic center, right? Everything's still in Jakarta, like like 70% of GDP is still in Jakarta, and etc. So the activity is pretty much concentrated on Jakarta region. That's including the neighborhood cities. And they're just moving the government center. And by you moving the government center, meaning that you're going to build buildings, housing, and road, and etc. That also will produce carbon, right? So, uh, but then at the same time, you have to find solution. But what happened in Jakarta doesn't mean that you move that the problem will go away. So now you have like two homeworks to do. So it's just like wasting resources and you're just also producing more unnecessary emission. Eliza also mentioned that the transition to the new capital won't be overnight. So there will be a lot of traveling back and forth, causing more emissions from flights. In the end, for both cities, Eliza says building a solid public transportation system is key. If the sprawling is still happening, if we don't have bigger public projects in terms of public transportation, then we still have the same air pollution.
So we have discussed a variety of reasons why Jakarta is struggling with air pollution. Traffic, caused by the lack of public transportation, burning waste, specifically plastic waste, in and around Jakarta, and toxic dirty coal plants. Seeing the impact of air pollution on the health of young children, Yuyun, Eliza, and Leonard want to push for a change in government policies. So the lawyers explained to us again that the citizen lawsuits is only pressuring government to change the policy and regulations. That's good enough for me because we have to change the policy so it will be more protective uh, to people and also for the future generations. So that's why I'm in. And, and even more when they said, oh, we are going to sue the president. The plaintiffs argued that Jakarta's current policies aren't efficient enough. For example, in 2020, only about 13,000 vehicles out of the 3 million private cars and 16 million motorcycles participated in the voluntary tests organized by the city government. Also, the government's updated national standard of exposure to PM2.5 particles is less stringent than the WHO standard. The plaintiffs wanted the government to follow the global standard. But as you can imagine, the legal battle was challenging. For one, it was hard to find objective, unbiased scientific opinions that could be represented in court. It's not easy to get the support from Indonesian experts. And that's why we look at the international experts. And we invited experts from the University of Chicago and then the UN Special Rapporteur on Environment, David Boyd, and a couple of more experts on health and air pollution. Because in Indonesia, we couldn't find any good experts that's on our side because they were all a bit scared, I guess. And many of them used to work with government institutions, so they didn't want to say something controversial. And for us, I mean, it was crazy. And also the studies showing the impact of uh, pollution to health is very limited. It's a handful of research published about it. And we found it from papers from other countries that mention Indonesia or uh, global experts making uh, projections about air pollution and health and the premature death. After two years in court and a lot of personal sacrifice on the part of the plaintiffs, the judges finally ruled that the government and ministers were guilty of violating the environmental protection laws and failed to combat air pollution. The ruling also urged the officials to establish a national ambient air quality standard, to conduct an analysis of cross-border emissions, and to test older vehicles periodically for emissions. It was a huge win. Well, we were very excited, actually. I mean, we didn't expect that. It's always unpredictable with Indonesian court. It's so environmental case, always tricky. We don't have enough judges who understand environmental concerns. But this is probably something that they feel dear to their hearts. I mean, after all, they are Jakarta citizens, all these judges. And they feel it. And like I said, they feel it every day, I would say. Leonard said Greenpeace had been using litigation as a means to drive policy changes since the 90s. Professor Jolene Lin, who has her feet deep in environmental law in the Global South, told us that climate litigation cases are becoming more common in Asian courts and often target the government's failure to reduce carbon emissions. 
I've been very positive in talking about how there's been a surge in climate activism and in climate litigation in Asia and other developing countries. And that is part of a global trend where people, and I, I can, you can imagine why NGOs are connecting across borders and saying, okay, you know, we see the strategy working there. We can try to replicate here. That's one, one possibility. Another possibility is you've got big NGOs like Greenpeace who have replicated the same strategy across different countries. And that is another example of how you get a multiplier effect. She also said human rights of the unborn generations are increasingly mentioned in such climate lawsuits. In many of the constitutions in Asia, there is a recognition of the right to a clean environment. And some courts have already gone further to say that the right to the clean environment is not only held by the current generation, but also by generations unborn. And there have also been there is also the parallel recognition in most jurisdictions in Asia of the concept of a public trust. The public trust doctrine is originally from Roman law, but it is found in almost all legal systems in Asia. And the idea is very basic. The state holds natural resources on trust for the people, and the people includes future generations. And the state therefore has to manage these natural resources responsibly for the benefit of current and future generations. In one way or another, Professor Lin said such lawsuits are more often than not an environmental activist bid to have a conversation with the government. What is not helpful is this idea of us versus them, that you know the activists are against the government and the government should fear the activists and the government acts only because the activists are shouting and using the law to compel governments to act. I think this us versus them mentality is very, very destructive. The way I see climate litigation is that it's somewhat of a legal conversation. The activists are using the law, partly because it's an, it can be an effective tool, partly because they have no other choice, because they are not being heard by the parliaments and the legislature. They're not being heard by the government. So where do they go? They go to the courts, hoping that they will have an avenue to be heard. In our last episode about Bangkok, we talked about how individual activists like Lin can start a rally to raise awareness and push for action. While it's hard to measure how much the Thai government heard their voices, in Jakarta's case, the plaintiff's lawsuit was a great success. Although the government filed an appeal against the verdict, the court recently rejected it and instead urged authorities to start taking actions. And we will continue this campaign. This is for our fairy lives and our children's lives. This is for the health of our populations. And, and this is, we think, very important for our future. If we don't want to continue having Jakarta as a dirty city, polluted and one of the most polluted in the world, we want to change that. Jakarta's residents still have a long way to go to fight for better air in the city. But environmentalists like Leonard remain hopeful. Environmental litigation cases do bring hope. But do they bring enough change? In our next episode, we look north for a peek into what is happening there. In Pakistan's case, a legal victory in Karachi in 2018 didn't stop the city and the nearby Punjab province from having some of the worst air quality in the world. So what happened? Civil lawsuits didn't work there, but residents managed to find another way. Stay tuned for the next episode to find out. 
Hey, Sustainable Asia listeners. I'm Marcy Trent Long. I'm the executive producer of Sustainable Asia. Your hosts for this episode were Koa Tran and Charmaine Lee. The producer was Charmaine Lee, sound engineer Avery Choi, and Jack Lee was the associate producer. A big thank you to our guests, Yuyun Ismawati, Elisa Sutunujuya, Leonard Simunjuntuk, and Professor Julene Lin. We wouldn't have made this podcast series without the support of the Heinrich Bohl Foundation, a green think tank from Germany with more than 30 offices around the world. We enjoyed working with the Bangkok, New Delhi, and Hong Kong offices to produce this series. Check out the Heinrich Bohl Foundation website links in our show notes to learn more about their insightful and thoughtful work across this region. Alexander Mobison created the intro-outro music made from repurposed and recovered waste items. Thanks for listening. See you next episode.